Welcome to The Principled Podcast, brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace changemakers. Hello, and welcome to another episode of LRN's Principled Podcast. My name is Ben DiPietro. I'm the editor of LRN's ENC Pulse newsletter. I hope you can find that and subscribe. And with me today is a very special guest, Wei Chen. She's an internationally renowned leader in ethics and compliance, regularly consults with companies as well as regulatory and enforcement authorities around the world, advising them on the design, implementation, and assessment of their ethics and compliance programs. Wei was the first ever compliance counsel expert at the United States Department of Justice and the chief consultant to the federal prosecutors in the fraud section, evaluating corporate ethics and compliance programs in areas such as anti-fraud, anti-bribery, quality control, manipulation of financial markets, and environmental protection. She was the author of the fraud section's well-known evaluation of corporate compliance, which is the predecessor document to the criminal division's guidance on that same subject. Prior to joining the Department of Justice, Wei served as a senior compliance leader for uh, companies such as Microsoft, Pfizer, and did work with Standard Chartered Bank as well. So she's been all over different industries. And uh, now, in addition to her work at Wei Chen Ethics, she is a chief integrity advisor to the Attorney General for the state of Hawaii. So welcome, Wei, and aloha to you. Aloha to you. Um, I obviously have to give my usual disclaimer that I am doing this podcast entirely in my private capacity. So it has nothing to do with my official position with the Hawaii, the state of Hawaii. And uh, uh, obviously nothing I say should be attributed to, to the state of Hawaii. Got that understood. And uh, someone who lived in Hawaii for 14 years, we were saying beforehand we could spend this whole podcast just talking about that, but we won't, and we'll uh, focus in on our ethics and compliance here as that's what people have come to uh, hear, but you're missing out on some fun stories, I'll tell you that. What sparked your interest in ethics and compliance so much that you created a career out of it? And give us a little bit about your career journey and how you found yourself in those positions you had and the ones you now have. So I really kind of fell into ethics and compliance. So it's hard to talk about it without setting it in the context of my career journey. So I'll keep it fairly brief. I went to law school uh, wanting to be a prosecutor. That's what I wanted to do. So I graduated from law school and I went to DOJ uh, under the Attorney General's Honors Program and was in a criminal division and went from the U.S., uh, spent three years at Maine Justice, DOJ in Washington, and then I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of New York in Brooklyn, which we used to jokingly call the melting pot of crime um, because we had criminals uh, from all over the world committing all kinds of crimes in, in Brooklyn. I did that. And out of about my third year there, I actually got a call from a recruiter recruiting me to join the anti-piracy team with Microsoft in Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe had been an interest actually Russia specifically was something that I developed an interest in when I was in law school. So second year of law school, I had spent a semester in Vienna, Austria, working at the UN. And that was 1990 when the Eastern, uh, the Iron Curtain fell. And I went to Eastern, went all over Eastern Europe, really developed an interest, started learning Russian, 
So when I had this opportunity to do work in Eastern Europe, being based in Europe, in Munich, Germany, I was thrilled. So that was the only thing that could have taken from the prosecutorial career that I loved. So I left the prosecutor's office, went to Germany, spent three years with Microsoft in Germany, came back to the U.S., spent a couple more years uh, doing anti-piracy work out of New York for the eastern region of the United States for for Microsoft. I was in New York when 9-11 happened. And when 9-11 happened, I spent a lot of time volunteering to to help the families uh, who lost their loved ones in applying for death certificates. So out of that experience, I ended up leaving legal career and went to study theology. Um, And uh, I got a master of divinity degree, was ordained a minister, and was actually working in seminary a very brief time when it became very clear that I was clearly not suited for ministry. And the first sign was the first thing I did was call together my staff and have them do goals and objectives, um, which they had never heard of. Um, and uh, so, and the, the next thing I did that was controversial was actually asking for the operating budget um, of, of, the, uh, of the continuing education program that I was running. So the former New York litigator really was not, not, not the best um, ministry material. So I, uh, so I caught up my friends at Microsoft and I said, yeah, I'd like to come back. Uh, you know, what can I come back to? And they said, how would you like to do compliance in China? And I said, well, that's about as different from being a minister in New Jersey as could be. Um, so I said, sure, I'll do that. Moved to Beijing in 2008. And that was the year they were doing Olympics. My, I sort of cut my teeth on anti-bribery and corruption compliance in reviewing a lot of the sponsorship packages for the Beijing Olympics event. I spent a couple of years there, then came and I wanted to come back to the U.S. And uh, I had an opportunity at Pfizer to do international to oversee international investigations uh, for the compliance team at Pfizer. So came back with Pfizer, spent about three and a half years with Pfizer, traveled like crazy, um, which I enjoy travel, but I really was putting in a lot of time, constantly jet lagged. And I said, I was really tired and I wanted to take a break. So I told my boss at Pfizer at the time, I said, I'm leaving. He said, where are you going? I said, are you going to another company? You know, like, tell, tell me, like, we'll, we'll do what we can't do. We want to do everything we can to keep you. I said, you really can't keep me because what I'm going to do is spend the next few months uh, as a cook in Italy. Um, so he, he said, we really couldn't compete with that. Um, so I left Pfizer, went to Italy, uh, cooked in a couple of restaurants in Northern Italy. Then I went off to Brazil and went to the carnival, was basically having a great, uh, sort of mid-career break. Um, when I got a call, um, and then I started thinking about, oh, when, you know, when would I, you know, I guess go back to a normal, normal work again. When I got a call from a headhunter again, said, do you want to uh, do you want to go to Standard Chartered Bank? We would move you to London. And pretty much at that sentence, I said, OK. So went to London for uh, to work for Standard Chartered Bank. That was really uh, as their global head of anti-bribery and compliance. That was really quite a challenging role. Um, And uh, about a year into that, the DOJ opportunity surfaced. And I came back to Washington to work for DOJ. That's sort of how I fell into this ethics and compliance career. So someone who's seen these programs from inside as a CECO and outside as part of DOJ, and now in your world as a consultant, 
What are the two things most companies do wrong when it comes to creating and managing their ethics and compliance programs? And what's one or two things they do well? You know, it's interesting. I always say that a person or a company's strength is precise. The flip side of their strength is their weakness. So on that question, I would say what they do well is exactly what they don't do well. What they do well, as it's not actually surprising when you think about it, compliance by nature is to do what you're told. So they do very well in terms of what they're told. So companies, the compliance program, I think basically are in this, let's watch what DOJ, SEC do, and we'll do what we, they tell us to do, or what we think they tell us to do. They do that well. They, you, you know, you, you, tell, you tell them to keep documentations, they keep documentations. You tell them to do 50 trainings, they do 50 trainings. But what they don't do well is actually thinking through why they're doing this. Um, and is thinking through what is the purpose for all of this. And what I wish they do a lot better would be, you know, and I've said this in my consulting work with clients, they, they, they constantly say, well, you know, what does the DOJ expect? And I always say, actually do better than what they expect. Particularly if you're, because usually companies, you know, really care about this stuff. When they're in trouble, they're preparing for that presentation in front of the DOJ. And they say, oh, what, what do they expect? What do they expect? And I, you know, I always tell them, most of the time, companies go, go in, uh, oftentimes what they present make the prosecutors and me roll our eyes. That's probably 40% of the time, if not 50. Another 40% of the time we say, ah, oh, it's okay. It sort of, you know, it's a C. It's a, it's a maybe a D, maybe a C, but it passes. Rarely do we meet the company that shows us something that a way of doing something that we thought, wow, that's really great. Be the company that sets the standard for other companies, because there have been times where somebody comes in that shows us something that we had not seen before, a new way of doing something, a way of doing something better. And we say, you know what? We're now actually expecting other companies to do this. So be the company that changes expectations. Don't be the company that meet expectations or barely meet expectations. So as someone who's been in government at the highest level and as someone who's now outside of government watching what's happened these last four years in terms of facts and truth and how it's changing in government and other parts of media and society, how does this new incoming U.S. administration work to restore trust in these areas and what can businesses do to help them? I think at a, at a big level, for, at the high level for both the government and the business is I strongly believe in transparency and open government and open business. And by that, I mean, you know, really a lot of the, you know, when we say, when we say open government, open business, a lot of that is actually making the data and information available to people. So, you know, open government initiatives uh, that, you know, is, has been um, a movement for close to at least a decade now, I would say. It's making slow progress, but it's making data available to the public, to the press, so that we can have that level of transparency, both into the governance of the public, in the case of government, and in the governance of business. Now, business, understandably, what they're able to put in the public realm has limitations because they obviously have to guard their 
business, their business secrets. They obviously have to guard their customers' privacy interests, but in terms of the governance of their their how they do their you know spending, um, what they choose to contribute to, what they choose to spend their money on, the more transparency there is, I think the more where the public as well, you know, it could be the public in some cases, but even within internal, within the company, their constituents, their stakeholders would have that view. And I think transparency is really, you know, as they always say in the anti-corruption space, you know, sunshine is the best uh, disinfectant and, and let people see the data and the information and let them come to the conclusion based on evidence. I also think What's really important is listening. I think listening, um, and this is the part that's really useful for me in in my current career that I learned from my brief time in ministry, is listening is a very undervalued um, art in life. People yearn for respect. And the way you show respect is you listen to them. Listening to people doesn't necessarily mean you agree with them, but listening to people means you hear, you let them know that you hear what they're saying and you hear and you understand and you sympathize with what they're experiencing. I think both the government and the business need to do more of that. So we're not yet past COVID in the world, but there seems to be a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel now with vaccines close at hand. So when we look back at this time in a few years, what are the biggest changes companies will have made as it relates to their ethics and compliance programs and trainings, and then as it relates to the workspace in general, where do you see offices existing or how are people going to be working in 2025 or so? You know, I think I think the changes that COVID has brought is we're actually only seeing the beginning of it. I cannot predict what other evolutions we're going to see in the workplace, but I actually don't, even if you know we see the vaccine the next year, I still think the way we work will fundamentally change some way beyond what we're able to imagine right now. But what I've seen in obviously um, in the in the last year or so or less is one this ability to shift to remote work. That you know that we have to first of all recognize those who are able to do remote work are the privileged ones. There is a lot of work that people do that cannot be done remotely. And I think that divide between those who are able to remote work and those who are not is something that needs to be attended to. Um, some Someone needs to pay attention to the divergence between these two types of workforces and the discrepancies between how they're treated and the dangers that they're exposed to and the culture that may evolve very differently for these two sort of two separate workforces, those who are able to work from home and those who are not. I also think. In the ENC space, I, I don't know if it's surprising or not, honestly, I am not seeing really much new things that's tied to the COVID brought changes. So I think in terms of ENC space, most of the ethics and compliance officers are still pretty much doing what we have always done, except in, I think maybe perhaps in the, in the training space, we may be even more reliant reliant on things like videos than before. Let me get you out of here with this last question, and thank you again for your time today. I really appreciate it. As someone of Asian ancestry, you no doubt have experienced some forms of racism in your life and your career. Can you share a story of such an instance, how it changed you 
And whether you see this current moment and push for racial equality and justice as having enough power to last until real change is made, and if not, and this one doesn't, what can be done to build that movement to create that necessary change? Oh, that's a that's a load of questions, right? Um, so, so let me let me start by saying I used to say that as a as an Asian American woman, I didn't feel like I had experienced racism, but I felt like I ex- experienced sexism all the time. And I can, you know, certainly, particularly earlier in my career, I, you know, I would go to, as a prosecutor, I remember going when I was in the organized crime and racketeering section in the criminal division as a young prosecutor, my boss, who was a woman, actually brought me to an organized crime prosecutors conference. And in the room, I was one of three women out of like 100 um, prosecutors. Um, And you know, and, and and I remember there were times that, you know, the bosses would go play basketball and it was clearly the guys playing basketball. It was not co-ed best yeah. basketball, <laughs> right? So so I, I felt like as a woman that I, I, I constantly felt that. And, and you know, even later in, in, in private practice, we used to we used to joke about the women in the group used to joke about how they could have management meetings in the men's room. Uh, because there were no women among management. Um, and uh, so so th- this this was something that, you know, I was very cognizant of. But I think later in my career, I think that the, I think the sexism aspect has improved. It's certainly not gone away, but it has improved. But as you mentioned, some of the some of the, 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 the Asian ancestry, I think, comes in people's assumptions and perfectly well-meaning assumptions and stereotypes. So, you know, funny thing, when, when I joined the fraud section um, and I would constantly have people come to me, uh, either, you know, press interviewing me or just, you know, in, in conversations, they would say, well, obviously, since DOJ hired you, that means they have a focus on China. And, and I would tell this to, to Andrew Weissman, who was then head of fraud section. He said, well, that's funny because no, when I became the head of section or fraud section, nobody asked me if that meant we had a focus on Israel. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? So, you know, and, and, and Ben, you know, you have an Italian last name. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't know if people constantly would come to you and say, oh, well, you know, like, this is means, you know, like you're doing something focused on Italy. Um, well, I'm from Brooklyn. And, and you I, mentioned crime before, so I was just laughing. Yeah, it's funny because people make these assumptions. I, I also, you know, I remember one time um, uh, somebody said to me, uh, after I mentioned that I had lived in China for two years, and they, they, their their answer was, you know, their response was, "Oh, you must know China very well." And I thought, you know, I lived in Germany for three years, and nobody said to me, "You must know Germany very well." <laughs> no, I, I lived in China two years. I lived in Germany three years, and yet they look at me and they say, "Oh, you know, like you must know." So, so one of the things I think. I, I know certainly when I have talked to, you know, to people at sort of career forums, I told them, I said, you know, look, I'm, this is why I very deliberately went very far away. You know, my, you know, I, I learned French and Russian and Italian. I was very deliberate in my work focus in focusing on Europe, not only because I'm, you know, very personally interested in the region, but also because I was not trying not to fall into that stereotype because yes, a lot of I know a lot of people of Asian ancestry ended up doing work with Asian companies or Asian businesses or businesses that have something to do with Asia. I always said, 
because my name is Hui Chen and I look like the way I do, I could have, I could spend my entire life and doing nothing Asia related. And I could be 65 and suddenly I decide to be the Asia expert and people would expect, expect me to you know, fully ex- accept my, my credentials. And voila, that's exactly how it's been, right? So part of it is that you need to figure out what's important to them. And yes, there are things, if, if you don't want to fall into that stereotype, you have to work harder. You have to work, you know, swim sort of against the stream to fight that stereotype. But I think also, you know, it's the same with both, you know, racism and sexism. It's really challenging assumptions. And, you know, I notice that there are times that I make assumptions. Making assumptions is normal because in the absence of other information, you only have sort of stereotypes and assumptions to go on. But once you recognize that, look, I'm meeting someone for the first time. I know nothing about them. This is something that gives me a little bit of background. But be open, be cognizant of that, be open to that and say, now that I'm meeting this person, we're going to have, now I'm, I'm going to have additional data points immediately. Use those data points to check your stereotype and your assumptions. I think all constantly urging people to think about their uh, assumptions and their hidden biases is something that we can all help each other do. That's so great. I want to thank you for spending time with us today. I know that was so interesting, especially your career path and how you were brave enough to change directions and take chances and then, you know, realize you wanted to do the thing you were doing initially until you went back to that. And uh, it just shows the journey is always uh, the most fun part as opposed to the actual destination. So uh, with that, I look forward to seeing you one of these days in Hawaii where we share shave ice together at Matsumoto's up on the North Shore. And Absolutely. Watch the surf hit the sand. And I'm going to hold you to that. I will hopefully be there soon. So thank you so much, Wei, and uh, thank you for everyone for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode. The Principled Podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning ethical cultures rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review.